Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You have to do partnerships and do a few of them to learn how to structure things and how to align incentives. But being too, I don't want to say greedy, but trying to keep the whole pie to yourself instead of cutting pieces of the pie out so you can actually get a deal done. I've never understood why you wouldn't want to do half of a big deal than none of it. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host, Ash Patel. Today's episode is brought to you by Presario Ventures, a private equity real estate firm based in the booming Austin, Texas market. To learn how you can invest in the future of Texas with Presario Ventures, please visit info.presarioventures.com forward slash best ever or click on the show notes below. Today's guest, Bob Thomas. Bob is joining us from Portland, Oregon. He is the chief investment officer and co-founder of Peak Asset Management. They are an integrated value-add commercial real estate operator that is asset class agnostic. Their plan is to stabilize in less than two years, then cash out refire 1031. Bob's portfolio consists of 200 units of multifamily and roughly 100,000 square feet of commercial retail and office. Bob, thank you for joining us and how are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I am doing pretty well. It's just turning into winter out here, and I'm excited to get the ski season started. Let's go. We're excited to have you. Would you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, so my background is very heavy into finance. I was a CPA out of school, studied accounting, a couple of degrees in accounting, public accounting, audit, and then transitioned into commercial real estate. So cut my teeth in real estate in the institutional office space, selling large office towers in San Francisco to two and four large institutions, REITs, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, that sort of stuff. Got one on my own in about 2017 and I've been wearing a lot of hats in the real estate market. So I do hard money lending. I'm a real estate broker, but basically only buy on my own account. And then I run an investment firm, Peak Asset Management. We buy value add commercial real estate. We're about 60% multifamily, 40% retail office based in primarily Portland, but looking to expand nationally over the next couple of years. 
When did you start Peak Asset Management? End of 18. When I really, I bought my first 13 or so apartment units at the end of 2018. And that's kind of when the company was founded. Did you set yourself up to become an apartment investor? And did the commercial stuff happen later? No, like I said, I learned commercial real estate in institutional office. So we were full stack capital markets. We were doing everything in the capital stack from senior debt to layering on mezzanine financing, finding JV equity, finding the operators, the whole shebang. So really learning at that level with that asset class, how to do it. And then when I started the company on my own, I was just looking for deals. Like you said in the intro, I'm asset class agnostic. From a brokerage standpoint, we did industrial, some hotel, a bunch of office, and then I've been operating multifamily. So once you understand the economic fundamentals of the various asset classes, you underwrite anything and uh, give a thesis and you see a good deal, good basis or yield or whatever, you kind of pull the trigger as needed. So no, it didn't start in just multifamily, didn't want to just focus on multifamily, but the capital has been cheap for the past five, 10 years and the market's been pretty strong. So we have played in multifamily as well as some other commercial classes. Bob, I love this, that you're asset agnostic. You're just looking for great deals. What is your metric that qualifies as a great deal? I think everyone is getting spanked right now regarding the capital markets. You've had 350 basis point rise in base rates, like the 10-year treasury and everything over the past 18 months. And it's October 25th right now. In the past month, you've seen a 100 basis point swing in that. So a lot of my investing thesis and our standard operating procedure has had to shift a little bit because we implemented the commercial Burr method. So on commercial deals, we were looking to buy value add deal, bunch of hair on it at a really good basis, and then value add it to the point of in 18 months or so, refinancing out all of our capital, holding the asset long-term, and then redeploying. Given where interest rates are, debt service coverage ratios, everything else, that full refinance of the capital is much more difficult to underwrite to right now. So until the bid-ask spread that you're seeing in the market comes in the line, I think the ask is going to come down more than the bid going up. Our transaction volume has gone down. I haven't bought anything this year. I'm in contract. I'm hard on a deal that we're going to buy at the end of November. It's a 50-unit apartment complex, but first deal I bought this year. And it's not for a lack of trying. We just haven't been able to find a common ground with uh, numbers with sellers. So... I think that's what we're seeing. Is what is your buy box? Yeah. Let's let's solve that problem. Sorry, so, I mean, let's like, solve that problem. Our, our, we, so we, we were buying to a full cash out refi. So basically a value add to full cash out refi at 18 months. And that was really the buy box because we're long-term holders of real estate, but we want to keep our velocity of equity and our markets relatively high. So we want to deploy capital into a deal, do the value add, pull it out via debt, redeploy, and continue that cycle. So that's the buy box. Any asset, we've done it with retail, we've done it with office, a bunch of multifamily. It's more challenging in this market because you need to get it at the right price and the debt needs to allow you to refinance. And that's been challenging. Would you consider a purchase if there's no refinance on the horizon? Here's where I'm going. If you have a great property that's cash flowing well, plus there's value add, and you know that for the foreseeable future, there's not going to be a good opportunity to sell or refi. You're going to end up holding it for five years. Is that a problem? We syndicate a lot of capital. We syndicate JV. I've never owned a piece of property 100% myself ever. 
even my primary residence co-owned. So it's all about our investors' expectations and aligning that. And like I said, we are long-term holders of real estate. It's just we've been working the model where within two years or so, you get back a majority of your capital via some liquidity event, a sale, and then you do a 1031, a large cash out refi, and that's just harder to achieve. So we've been talking to some of our investors and saying, this is more challenging to underwrite the large liquidity event for, and some are okay with it. But it's just, like I said, right now, sellers don't want to sell at the price where those deals make sense. Investors still are kind of unsure it's a challenging market. So yes, to answer your question, I would buy something. I am looking at buying something right now. I'm in contract on it. I'm going to close to the end of next month. That could be a five, seven year hold before a liquidity event. It's a lot of my own capital going into that. And then some of our investors are just a little more longer term focused. What rate of return do your investors typically seek? I've always found this interesting, the return question. And you can probably pick up from my background and everything. I'm very quantitatively focused on real estate. I kind of think of real estate via a spreadsheet. So where most syndicators talk about IRR, they've got a five-year target. I don't like the IRR concept. I'll run IRRs because investors want to see them. But with our investment strategy, we're focused on post-liquidity event, cash on cash return. So put in your money. You're not going to see much return for two years because we're doing the value add. We're using that money to improve the property. After two years, we're going to pull out the capital and give it back to you, but hold on to the property. What is the amount of cash that's left in the deal for you relative to the return you're getting? We like to see that in the upper teens on an ongoing basis and then do that again. So that's committed to upper teens, post-liquidity event, cash on cash. All right. So let's dive into what are you closing on next? It's a 50-unit multifamily building, pretty heavy value add in Northeast Portland just released a couple hundred grand of earnest money two days ago on it, closing at the end of November. We think we got a good basis on it. We were in contract for 120 grand a door, 6 million bucks, ended up retraining it down to four and a half million because of some stuff we found in diligence. So we, we like 90 grand a door as a basis on it. I mean, you haven't really seen a trade like that since early teens in Portland, maybe 2010. All right. So all of the multifamily people that are saying there's no good deals out there, you just found a great deal. Now, that's what I'm thinking when you say there's no good commercial deals out there. They're out there, but I'm trying to figure out more of your buy box. Is it a certain dollar amount? Do you have a minimum or maximum or both? I think the deals are out there. It's just what you're seeing right now is the people who don't need to sell aren't selling because they're going to get their hat handed to them in the market. So you're only seeing sales come up as needed, usually due to some sort of capital issue that needs to be refinanced that can't be refinanced and therefore needs to go and you know put on the auction block. So they're out there. I think they're definitely more coming, but you've seen the whole market take a dive in terms of transaction volume over the past year. And it's just because of that. Sellers who aren't maturing on debt, they're not selling. I'm not. Why would you sell in a down market when if you have a five-year horizon on your debt, you don't need to sell? you should probably wait it out. So I think as more of the 2019, 2020, 21 acquisitions that people put debt on as those mature, they're going to be forced to sell. And so I think you're going to see a lot more quasi distressed sales coming out of that. Our buy box right now, from a size perspective, smaller commercial, so sub-institutional. We basically have been pushing our purchase price up, 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 trying to buy from non-institutional sellers and be below 
the institutional buyers. So we're not competing with them and they have different capital that's cheaper. So they're able to buy things for compressed cap rates relative to us. So kind of that two to $10 million purchase price is really what we found. Over that, you start competing with a different buyer who can pay more for the asset. And people doing the residential real estate stuff, they just don't know how to buy a two to $10 million commercial property. So it's kind of a limited buyer pool that has been beneficial for, for what we do. Do you have a geographic area that you focus on? I spend on the West Coast. We had a mobile home park in California. We got a car wash in Washington State, but primarily we're based in Portland. Though we are looking at a few other national markets and starting to explore potential acquisitions in about seven national markets: Charlotte, Denver, Salt Lake, some Texas markets, places like that. How about the Midwest? I'm from Chicago. And people in, in real estate, they talk about the coasts being kind of lower cap rate, higher value, lower cash flow, the middle of the country being higher cash flow. With our strategy of really value adding those properties, you get the most bang for your buck on the capital you put into it when your cap rates are compressed. So I'm liking sticking to the coast primarily, or at least markets that aren't 10 cap markets, eight cap markets on multifamily. We like the five cap multifamily markets. So San Francisco, Portland, to a certain extent, you kind of understand the difference. I do, but with rates, the sevens and eights, why do you want to buy properties that have compressed cap rates? I want to be in a compressed cap rate market because we aren't buying compressed Where cap rates. they're compressing. Rate. Yeah, we're buying value add deals. So we're force appreciating into compressed cap rates. So every dollar that we get on that value add is going to be worth significantly more in a compressed cap rate market relative to a cash flowing market. Totally understand. Got it. Because adding value to a five cap is a significantly higher yield than adding value to a 10 cap market. Yeah. So you get 20 X on every dollar of NOI versus 10 X in the other market. Correct. And then your take on office, you've cut your teeth with large office buildings. What is your outlook on office going forward? Whew. I have a lot of friends in office. That was what I knew off the bat. A lot of friends doing brokerage, a lot of friends doing operator stuff. No one is doing well in office. If, if they tell you that they're wrong. It's interesting to bifurcate. The whole market's kind of getting pushed sideways because of where interest rates are in the macro environment. But then office had that structural change in tenant demand, which has taken it to a whole new level. So you're really starting to see distressed sales coming on the market there. There's been a few in San Francisco. There was a significant one in Portland recently, traded 13 million bucks where the last trade in 2014 was like 80 or 70. Something similar in Chicago. So you're starting to see that unwind nationally. Again, as debt matures, most of them are non-recourse loans. And these operators just know their equity is wiped. The lenders are even getting 30, 50% haircuts on their loans. So everyone understands that if you're not in a office property that was built in the last 20 years, that's 1960s to 1980s, there's not enough demand for it anymore. And so will a repurposing happen? Likely. I think that at some point, those become good deals. The question in my mind is, right now, it's hard to underwrite what you're going to do with it. So you could see a building at $70 a square foot, a downtown high rise for 70 bucks a foot. And you're like, oh man, that's a great deal. It's going to be worth way more than that at some point, some way. But the business plan to get there is a big question mark. And so if you're not using cash to buy it and you have to service debt on the thing, 
and you don't have a business plan, it's too risky to take care of. So I think there's going to be a lot more pain in the market before people start to convert the assets and the supply side of the equation comes in and the demand side becomes a little bit more clear. How far is this work from home, the change in the office demand scenario going to go? So I think it's got a lot more pain than the rest of the market. And it's going to be just a longer term question mark. Am I interested in buying some office, some really good basis? Yeah, for sure. But I use debt on my acquisitions and that just scares the shit out of me. Because if you don't have revenue coming in, you've got debt to service. That's just a recipe to give the keys back to the bank. Yeah, I agree with you. So right now we work on the verge of bankruptcy. We're in October of 2023. They occupy 44 million square feet of office throughout the world, most of it being in the U.S., and they went from a $50 billion company to a $100 million company insolvent on the verge of bankruptcy. So that might trigger a tremendous amount of pain in the office market. But after the dust settles, do you not believe that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to pick up class A office for 20, 30 cents on the dollar? I do. I think what you're seeing, and I alluded to it in my last comment, is this flight to quality. So class A built since 2005, it's getting hammered, but all the people who are bleeding out of the 1960s to 1990s B-class office, they're all going to that A-class property because lease rates are coming down and it's an easier time. So the class A stuff, you might be able to get it at a 40 or 50% discount right now. And I think that is going to be a really good deal long-term, but where you're seeing that real distress sale, the 25 cents on a dollar kind of sale, is this product that really is functionally obsolescent. And I don't see the use case for that coming back without a significant amount of capital being invested to repurpose it. Whether it's a downtown data center or like some vertical warehouse or a residential conversion is obviously hot, but it's really challenging to execute. I think those quality properties are going to need to have something else done with them. And then because of that, the class A stuff, I think you're going to make a 30 to 40% discount on it, which I agree is probably a good deal at some point, but it's not going to be like the 20 cents on the dollar kind of deal. Bob, what about suburban office? Let's get away from the downtowns, those downtown walkable suburbs, office space there, especially in the Midwest and Southeast has been on fire for us. It's been on fire in Portland too. History isn't everything, right? So you can't look at historical returns and be 100% confident that it's going to come back around. But I think historically, if you look at suburban office, it's kind of on the tail of the whip in office where when things are good, it rises. When things are bad, it falls. Now, there's been this change in the market. Portland is a great example. There's a couple of large office properties owned by Shorenstein outside of Portland, definitely suburban, and they're achieving their highest lease rates ever. They're relatively full. Um, and people want to move closer to home. They're kind of downsizing their offices, but want them closer and not in these main urban cores. So yes, does it feel like a good play right now? Yeah, it looks good. Do I think that over time, you're going to be wishing you probably invested your money somewhere else? Just looking at the history of suburban office, I do think that it's probably not the best deployment of capital. I don't think you deploy into office right now. I think you wait three to five years to see where things shake out, unless you're a total cash buyer with just a ton of conviction. Three to five years, that's a hell of a outlook. It's got a ways to go. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Did you anticipate this rising rate environment that we're in? I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but yes. We've always tried to buy really good deals. And I am 
the biggest critic of a deal when I'm going to buy it. I sensitize the hell out of it. I look at what happens if rates go to the moon, everything else. I always underwrite to a refinance. I'm always putting a 100 bip spread on my current cap rate relative to where I'm selling at. I want things to, in a bad scenario, still work. And if that works, I'll buy the deal. And then it's gravy if things go okay. So yeah, we saw it coming mid-2021 and we started refinancing a lot of stuff. We basically have our whole portfolio now with seven-year maturity on it in terms of the debt and fixed rate. So we're feeling pretty good with where we're at. We sold a bunch of properties in 1031 into some other more value-add deals. So we set ourselves up where we're not feeling the pinch right now. And if it only lasts three years, we'll probably be all right. Some of the people who were buying four cap deals in 2021, hoping for market rent growth, they're in a tough spot right now. Like the multifamily syndicators who were going super long in mid-21 are in a world of hurt. We see that a lot. There's a lot of headlines out there. There's a tremendous amount of pain in multifamily how are you positioned to capitalize on that? I'm sure your wheels are turning. I think the biggest thing for us was making sure that our financing was stable, fixed rate debt that has maturities past when we think this whole turbulence is going to end. So we got our last couple of properties refinanced middle of this year, not at the rates we loved, but we got them done. We don't have anything coming due. And so I think where the deals are going to come from are those people who are having the debt issues and are forced to be sellers. And so because we don't have that, and we've got a fairly strong capital base who believe in us, believe in our track record, we've had successful deals and returned to them, I'd say 70% of our capital base are repeat investors. So because of that, I'm constantly talking to our investor base and saying, where are you at? How are you feeling about the market? What are you reading? And just kind of keeping in tune with everyone. People are ready to go. There's capital on the sidelines for a deal. And because we set the portfolio up from a debt side where we've got some runway, I think we're better able to take advantage than people who, instead of hunting for deals, are trying to figure out how to not go bankrupt. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor struggling to streamline your property management? Are you tired of juggling multiple systems to effectively manage your portfolio? Meet Rentec Direct, your ultimate solution for automating management tasks, reducing errors, and most importantly, saving you time. Rentec Direct offers an all-in-one platform for accounting, marketing, tenant screening, rent collection, and much more. And the best part? You're never alone. With U.S.-based live support and award-winning customer service, Rentec Direct is the partner you need to streamline your property management so you can focus on what's most important, growing your business and getting more deals done. If you're an investor looking to grow your portfolio, join the more than 15,000 investors and landlords who manage real estate assets totaling more than $200 billion using Rentec Direct. Just go to rentecdirect.com forward slash best ever and sign up for a free trial. Plans start at just $45 a month and you'll receive 20% off your first year just for being a best ever listener. That's R-E-N-T-E-C direct.com forward slash best ever for 20% off. Going forward, what's your outlook on retail and are you actively looking to pick up retail? I say 40% of our portfolio is retail office. Primarily that's retail. We have some strip centers, a bunch of mixed use, ground floor, commercial upstairs apartments. We've got some single tenant net stuff. It's all been value add acquisitions that we've stabilized out. But I think retail really took its licks 
when the e-commerce trend started and then again during COVID, it's really shown itself to be fairly resilient. We've had pretty good success with our retail portfolio from a leasing perspective, vacancy collections, everything like that. Now we're not dealing on an institutional level. We don't have any multi-hundred thousand foot strip centers that are grocery anchored and stuff. I mean, our stuff is all sub 15,000 square foot spaces for tenants. So we're dealing with that regional tenant. It's been easy to find those kind of deals. I think I'm still long on retail and I'm looking for more deals. Where I see potential issues is if what the Fed is trying to engineer in terms of a recession, if that doesn't just hit asset prices like it's doing now, but it actually trickles through to the real economy and you start seeing the small business bankruptcies, that's going to crush our tenant base. And I could see that being a, a material risk for what we do in retail. Yeah, that's a great outlook. CBRE released their latest metric. Retail vacancy is the lowest that it's ever been since they started tracking that in 2005. So retail is very healthy, but yes, the Fed is obviously trying to kill jobs. That's got to trickle down to small business owners. The majority of our listeners are probably multifamily. Your advice on them, on being asset agnostic and looking at different asset classes? I'd say just start. Whatever investment you're doing, it could be a small business or real estate. You need to look at the fundamental economic drivers of that business. So for multifamily, you're probably looking at population growth and median income trends and affordability of buying a house, that sort of stuff. If you're looking at office, you're going to want to be looking at job growth, new business activity, tenants coming into the space from other markets. San Francisco right now is bleeding tenants to Texas. Things like that, you'd want to really understand what's driving what so you invest in the right areas. If you go and start browsing the market for what's on the market, pull up some offering memoranda from good, reputable shops. You said CBRE in East a JLL, and they literally analyze the deal for you. So if you read enough of those, you get an understanding of how to look at a deal. So if you don't know how to do it, they're out there. Just pick up a couple OMs and then start trying to underwrite them yourself. You can invest in something you have no idea what you're doing. It could be a crapshoot, but if you really start to get your own thesis from really understanding the macro stuff on that specific asset class, and then just networking with brokers and trying to find those deals, you should have a level up where you, you can go and do it as long as you can figure out the capital behind it. If you're a one to four unit investor and you're not bankable, you're going to have to find a capital partner, which is great go out and raise capital, but you're gonna have to find a capital partner to go get a bank loan or figure out some sort of creative financing approach to go buy these deals. Just because the financing is a little different than on the small multifamily or resi side. And I'm happy to talk through that more. You've been raising capital for a number of years. How did you start raising capital and what are you doing differently today to attract investors? When you start, you just can't be bashful. The friends and family the looking under the couches, talking to everyone, asking for referrals. The way I've always done it, I started in this institutional commercial real estate world and the brokers are making a bunch of money. You're meeting the guys who are investing in these large deals who are also making money. So all the people who are working in the industries I was in, I have friends who did investment banking, things like that. They all, they all are making a lot of money and they're seeing these large scale investments happen, but they aren't really able to invest in it themselves. They're either too busy working or their companies don't let them co-invest, at least at the GP level. So I was able to basically tap my network of friends and family to a certain extent, that sort of thing to start because they all had this money that they wanted to invest. They knew that we were actively doing it. 
or, or looking at deals, but they didn't have the time or the ability to actually execute it themselves. So that's kind of how we started. And then after a few of those came full circle and they were successful, then it's been more of a referral game. So we've never really gone and done a bunch of external marketing for investors. And that needs to change because at some point our investors are going to go into their pockets and pull out rabbit ears if we hit some of our acquisitions targets. But to date, it's just been start out asking everyone who you know, staying in contact with them. And then after a couple of those have worked, really repeat investors and a lot of referrals coming in. What will you do to be more proactive? We're building out our investor relations arm of our company currently. So just getting in front of new investors, going to family office events, our company's goal, we're at about 50 million bucks in portfolio value right now, which sounds cool to people who aren't really in the space, to people who are really doing real estate on a large scale, it's like a drop in the bucket. So our goal is to hit a billion dollars and become institutionally investable in about three years. And then from there, you kind of grow on that path. So when you think about how the capital works, it starts out, you have to raise high net worth investors capital from syndications and things like that. You can move into this middle tier quasi-institutional bucket of capital with family office investors. And then you end up getting into the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds of the world once you have that track record and hit about a billion bucks in portfolio value. So we're just cresting into the family office realm now, which makes it easier because you have deeper pockets that can fund. But I think that's what we're seeing is really starting to target those small institutional investors who are able to give bigger commitments. Bob, what's the hardest lesson you've learned in real estate? I've never realized a loss on a real estate deal, but I've been in a real estate deal for six years now that I should have exited a long time ago, but we kept trying to fix a broken deal instead of just selling it at a, effectively a break even. We kept trying to re-engineer it in order for it to succeed. We started out looking at the deal as a large development play, and then certain things changed. We could no longer do the development so we tried to change the business plan instead of exiting the deal, basically getting our money back and moving on. And now with the way the market's changed, that has turned into almost looking at a loss and just how significant of a loss when we actually exit are we going to do? Do we put in more capital to do this smaller development that might be less of a loss than just selling now? Whereas velocity of equity, it's like the biggest part of the deal. Being able to put your money into something then take it out and, and redeploy. For me, that's how you build the portfolio. You're able to keep getting these value add size returns and stacking them. So having a ton of capital tied up in a deal for six years and trying to re-engineer it to succeed instead of just taking your licks and going and redeploying, like that biggest lesson I've learned is sometimes if the deal is telling you that it's not going to work, stop trying to force it. And there are other deals. You just need to go and execute a new one. Do you have investors on that deal? Yeah. And we're in a few other deals together too. One of the investors in that deal is one of my investors in most of the deals that I've done. So we've been married on the thing for the longest time, and we just keep trying to figure out new approaches. And when the capital markets were friendly and interest rates were at 3%, it's kind of easy to math things out to make them work. But now you're staring at 8% bank debt, and you have to put in even more money on top of the money. So yes, I'm working hand in hand with the investors, making sure that we're taking collaborative approaches and everyone's aligned. But at the end of the day, looking back, I should have dug in my heels harder and said, no, let's just sell, get our cash back and go and find another deal or go our separate ways. It would have been a much smarter approach. So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned is sometimes if a deal is telling you it's not a good deal and you can cut your losses on it, 
reusing that capital to make more money is sometimes a better approach. Bob, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Two things. Don't wait, just start. People spend too much time thinking about investing rather than getting a thesis and executing. And we talked about the velocity of equity and compounding returns and everything else. I started when I was late 20s. If I had started when I was early 20s, my net worth would be significantly different. So I think starting now is huge and not overthinking it. And then two is partners. I don't think enough people partner on deals. Not every partnership works. You have to do partnerships and do a few of them to learn how to structure things and how to align incentives. But being too, I don't want to say greedy, but trying to keep the whole pie to yourself instead of cutting pieces of the pie out so you can actually get a deal done. I've never understood why you wouldn't want to do half of a big deal than none of it. I've never understood that. Build your resume. In our case, we have an internal management company, so we get management fees on the whole thing. We get promoted returns. There are ways to structure partnerships that make a lot of sense. And you do way more deals that way and spreading your risk. You have extra partners who can help. As long as you're picking your partners right and you're structuring the partnerships right, partnerships are great. And I think too many people, they're stepping over deals because they don't think they can fund them. They don't have the capital. And it's a huge benefit. Like I said, I've never owned a piece of real estate 100% myself in my life. You mentioned your primary residence is co-owned. Who's the co-owner? My partner, Kelly, we've been together 12 years, have a kid. We're not married. Got uh, it. But, okay. But so yeah, it's so a domestic like, I co-owner. I got it. Got yeah, got it. Got yeah, exactly. I didn't know if you had some crazy house hacking, sharing way of buying your primary residence. Your partnership advice is incredibly valuable. And for anybody that's weary of forming partners because they've gotten burned in the past, you're supposed to. You're supposed to get burned and learn what a good partnership is. So you're right. I don't think enough people put enough value into that. You've heard the phrase, if you want to go far, go together. My one partner, when we brought on the third partner, she said to me, Ash, are we splitting everything we do three ways now? I said, yes. And she was taken back like, wow, that's a significant cut into our equity or revenue or profits. But in fact, it's helped us achieve a much faster velocity of money. The trajectory that we're on has increased significantly. So you're right. And that's great advice that's not often given. So thank you for that. When you're thinking about a partnership, it's about aligning incentives and making sure that you're getting complementary skill sets from your partners. So I'm really good at capital raising and acquisitions and things like that. I have a weakness around construction project management and stuff like that. And so getting that kind of component in as a co-GP, I'll gladly give half the deal because I can focus on what I'm good at and let someone else focus on what they're good at. It's accretive, basically. It's one plus one equals three. And that makes way more sense than me banging my head against the wall trying to do construction management when I can't get a new acquisition deal because I'm focusing on that. That makes no sense. So yeah, I think it's all about aligning incentives, making sure people are getting paid for performance and that if things go wrong, you both aren't pulling in different directions and making sure that what you're doing is complimentary. Bob, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read? What It Takes by Stephen Schwartzman, I think is my favorite book. It's the co-founder of Blackstone, uh, which is the biggest owner of private owner of real estate in the world, and his story on building the company. Paraphrasing, one of the biggest takeaways is that it's hard to start a business, small or big. And if you're going to go and start something and put all your effort into it, which is the only way you're going to succeed is if you just are passionate about it, you might as well do something that's large enough that's worthy of your efforts. 
So that's why our goal as a company is to grow to be similar to the size of Blackstone. And so when I say our portfolio is 50 million bucks, it's small. That's because in my mind, it's tiny. We need to hit a trillion dollars in assets under management, right? We're nowhere near where we want to be. And I think if you have that mindset of thinking big, shooting for a very large goal, having a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG, I think that kind of pushes you on the right path. And then that book really emphasizes that. Bob, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I love financial education. So I go and do talks on financial literacy and talks on real estate investing and then creating generational wealth and passive income and doing that not just for the investor community, but we've done some partnerships with Junior Achievement, going into local schools and teaching financial literacy to kids. And so we're working on building out more of a proprietary framework on doing that. But right now we're we're partnering with other 1C3s to go and, and give back to teach children. It kills me how people are in this W-2 mindset and you're just trained that way from the time you're a kid of get a job, go to school, blah, 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 blah. You should do that. I did that. But you need to know that what you're doing is setting you up for your long-term goal and that there's a lot of different avenues to achieve that. And so we're trying to get kids young and really kind of get them to understand different ways they can go with their life and how that can benefit them in the long term. Bob, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Our website, peakassetmgt.com, has all of our contact info. My email is bthomas at peakassetmgt.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. Happy to talk through deals. If there's investors who want to chat, that's great. But I'm a deal junkie, self-proclaimed. So we do hard money lending. We've made our business more efficient by starting a VA company to help offshore talent. So there's a lot of ways that we like to chat with people about how to help their business, how they can help us. And so, yeah, if they want to reach out, I'm more than happy to chat. Bob, thank you for a great conversation. You've given us some great nuggets of advice. I love that you're asset agnostic. Would love to keep hearing about what you're taking down in the future. So thank you for your time. Yeah, really appreciate being on. This was fun. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.